Welcome to Story Story Night, where you hear true stories on a theme recorded live in Boise, Idaho. I'm your host, Jody Eichelberger. We are rebooting in our 12th season by returning to themes from our first season. On this podcast, our featured storytellers share stories inspired by the theme star-crossed love, stories of faded attraction. Our first featured storyteller, Michelle Russell, has been a slammer and also competed in our Slammer of the Year show in 2019. Both Sophia Markle and Spencer Harbour are sharing stories on our show for the first time. It's story time. Michelle Russell. Hi, everyone. Ten years ago, no, that's not right, when my son was ten years old, We tried really hard to find something he liked doing. We tried basketball, and when the ball came to him and the kids started to run toward him, he immediately handed it to the kid nearest him and walked off stage. We tried baseball, no. We tried wrestling, no. We tried Boy Scouts, definitely not. In 2007, I was recovering from the wounds of a painful divorce and trying desperately to shield my sensitive son from the ruin of everything he knew. I wanted to keep him engaged. I loved my son, but what did he love? We tried painting, better. We tried uh, drawing, better. We tried acting, yes. He did local plays at the Boise Little Theater, at the Shakespeare Festival, and at school. And I was happy to drive around my budding star and wait in the green room day after day, night after night. When he was 17, this same boy wrote a book of sonnets called 155, which was a one-up on Shakespeare's 154 sonnets. I'm the mom who bought hundreds of copies and unabashedly gave them to everyone I knew before I read it. (laughs) What's that, Papa? Yes, I I think Curtis is okay. No, I I don't think he actually used black tar heroin. (laughs) Oh, I I read that one. Yes, uh uh-huh. I I think maybe rhyme scheme. Uh Uh-huh. Uh, that one? Yeah, that, that's probably street cred. Uh-huh. We looked in the Boise Weekly for auditions for him to attend. And we found an audition for a musical melodrama. It was called Area 51, The Xmas Files. Hmm. It was to be held at the Prairie Dog Theater, which used to be up off of Rose Hill. In the back of it was the Veterans of Foreign War and a, and a lounge area. In the front of it was the Prairie Dog Theater. The Prairie Dog Theater was a dilapidated old building, and it had uh, as many sketchy characters as it had sketchy corners in the building. We walked in, and there was sawdust and peanuts on the floor and a prevalent stale smell. We sat down near the piano to wait for his audition. 
As we looked around, I could feel his confidence shrinking and his anxiety growing as he took in the adult community theater actor scene. He turned to me and said these faithful words, Mom, Mom, will you audition? What? Will you audition? Go up there, fake an audition, make them laugh. Then no one will notice me. What? You want me to audition and this will somehow help you? Yes, Mama, please. He scooched over to the man who seemed to be the director and whispered, add my name to the list, quickly telling him, this isn't a real audition, this is a ploy, this ploy to make my son feel better. He snorted at me and told me I was next. I marched up to the stage. I turned and faced the audience, lamenting all the while that I always get myself into these things. Sing, sing. <laughs> oh no, I don't know the words to any songs. Oh no, much less the melody. Oh no, sing. Mm, okay. Happy birthday to you. See how this went. Everyone was laughing and having such a good time. I think they thought I was trying to be funny. I wasn't, but it didn't matter. It worked. Curtis successfully, uh, successfully auditioned, and away we went. Later that same afternoon, my cell phone rang, and the director said, we have a part for you. And I said, oh no, you mean my son. That wasn't a real audition. I can't possibly. I'm not an actor. I work full time. He said, no, no, we mean you. And I said, no, no, you mean my son. And he said, we only have a part for you. We only have a part for him if you take a part. <laughs> Monday morning, I was teaching Shakespeare to my ninth graders on autopilot while my mind actively tried to solve this dilemma caused by this director. He can't give me an ultimatum. There's got to be a way out of this. Ah. Shakespeare wrote, no love stories, only tragedies. Star-crossed love comes from Romeo and Juliet, blah, 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 blah. I taught this play for five periods a day for five years in a row. Back at our first rehearsal one week later, seems there was no way out of this dilemma that didn't involve heartbreak for my son. I looked around, surely this must be a mistake. Surely there's someone else. Curtis had been cast as one of two children anxiously awaiting Santa Claus and Christmas. <laughs> He got to wear footy pajamas and had easy lines. I had been cast as Agent Scullery, an X-Files investigator tasked with saving Christmas from the evil Atnis. 
who was Santa's twin, spelled backwards, of course. I had a whole script of lines, a whole script. And I had to wear an ugly, ill-fitting suit. (sighs) Okay. I looked around again and took in my cohort. There was a leading man with mouth sores. There was a plump, balding woman who seemed to be a regular. There was a long-haired, shifty, stoner type. And a grown man wearing Bart Simpson house slippers and pajamas in the middle of the day. Oh, and the stage manager who never once looked up from his pasta bread bowl. Here we were. Here we were. And then it was break time, and we went to the lounge at the VFW, permeated with smoke everywhere. The walls seemed to be breathing smoke. The hot dogs were served lukewarm and perfectly rubbery. I wondered if time stopped here. And then the director called us back. He often had us do silly things to start the warm-ups. Today, he said, turn to your right and massage the person in front of you. I made sure Curtis was in front of me. Before I could look who was behind me, strong hands gripped my shoulders and drove them into meltdown. I may have moaned out loud. (laughs) I dared look over my shoulder. (gasps) The stoner. (laughs) I actively avoided him the rest of practice. As we were leaving, I noticed he was riding a bike. And the words came out of my mouth unbidden. Wanna ride? He smiled, sized up my car for bike hauling capacity, found it adequate, smiled to my son, nodded, and got in with us. My heart was all a flutter. I was sweating. I don't know why. He's not my type. I had a little argument with myself. He's a grown man. He's wearing green tights and Yoda ears. Stop it. He's shifty. Stop it. He's careless. Stop it. He's nearly homeless. Definitely stop it. (laughs) Instead, as time went by, I found myself saying, why don't you drive and flipping him my keys? Hmm. Thirteen years from that first fateful touch, and that shifty stoner and I have traveled the world together. We combined our families, my sons, his daughters, all ours. We lost a combined 120 pounds. He helped me stop drinking. 
And to this day, his touch still makes me swoon. Please welcome Sophia Markle. Hello, this is my first time ever telling a story, so if I get a little wobbly, just thank you for your support. I went on a six-week, 5,000-mile love tour, and it was when I returned that I found out the truth. I remember the H1N1 scare of 2009, and I know it seems like just a blip now after what we've been going through for the past two years, but he needed a place to stay. So my brother calls me and says, hey, Sophia, remember my friend, the one with six kids and two ex-wives? He needs somewhere to stay. And I was like, no. (laughs) Six kids, two ex-wives? I would have remembered that resume because at the time I was a single woman. I said, you know what? He can stay. It's fine. If he gets fresh, I have a bat. We're good to go. So a week later, he knocks on my door. And I open the door. And wow, he had these blue eyes that just sparkled and he had on a red corn huskers hat and he was kind of like looking down and under his hat i played it cool <laughs> that's how i do it i said hi i'm sophia nice to meet you and he said you ready to go to dinner we can go now i said well i thought that you might want to take a shower because he'd been on the road coming back from california and he said um that's a really good idea i'll, I'll uh Go get my stuff. I said, okay, good. So I closed the door and I literally smelled my armpit because I thought he was acting so strange because I smelled. This is in Arizona and it's, you know, you're a little sweaty. He came back. He had his swagger back. He was fine. I showed him the shower. He took a shower and then we went to dinner. We had the most amazing time. But again, six kids and two ex-wives. There's no way I'm going to date this guy. And on top of that, he brags to me, I only date black women. It's never, never a good thing to say. (laughs) So the next night, he said, why don't I cook us dinner? And I'm like, heck yeah. I mean, I don't, at the time, I wasn't much of a cook. So he cooked this amazing meal. It was delicious. We had fantastic conversation. And then he made himself scarce. Because at the time, I was a high school dance teacher in Mesa, Arizona. And I was about to go into Hell Week, which is when I have 200 dancers on stage and I'm trying to get them in the right place at the right time. And I only have four days to do it. So next morning I woke up, went to Hell Week. He left, I didn't see him, and I was like, good riddance, goodbye bugaboo, I'm done with you. Two weeks later, he sends me a text. I think that your show's happening, I just wanted to wish you good luck, I hope it goes really well, and I'm like, why is he bothering me? <laughs> like, c- come on, I'm, dude, just go away. Thanks, it was good. Whatever. Two weeks later, school semester's over. I'm rolling into Christmas. I'm super excited. And I get a text from guess who? From him. Is your brother coming to town um, for Christmas? And he was, actually. He never comes to town normally, but he was coming in town. I said, actually, he is. And so what he responds is, I'm actually moving to Arizona. And I really want to surprise your brother, so don't tell him I'm coming. And I was like, okay. And for a split second, 
a split of a teeny tiny split second, I thought he was moving to Arizona to be with me. I thought, Sophia, just chill. It's, there's no way. There's no way. It's not that deep. He had a really great time when he was here. He liked twirling on his, with his Jeep and just going out on hikes. So about a week later, we're texting because we'd gone to a party for the holidays. And I meet him outside, and I see him, and my heart kind of flutters a little bit. And I'm like, crap. Um, so we go inside, and my brother sees his face, or my brother sees him, and my brother's face, he got this huge smile on his face. And he just, it was just sheer happiness and love and appreciation and admiration. And the firm embrace that they gave each other, my heart opened. And I was like, okay, I get it. I'm open. And so for the rest of that weekend, we palled around. He helped me with my last minute shopping. We did holidays with my family. Actually, I did holidays with my family. He did whatever it is that he did. And then when my brother left, we started hanging out a little bit more. And the feelings started to grow. And I was like, okay, you know, this is fun. Um, we went on road trips. We talked. We dug deep, like all the bad stuff in our life. We just kind of threw it out. Because at the time, I was like 31, and he was like 40. So we knew that we just need to get it out. Because if it's not going to work, it's not going to work. If it is, great. Um, and it just kept getting better and better. Um, in January and February, I actually was performing um, a show. And so what he did is he actually offered to take me to some rehearsals. He dropped me off some dinner every now and again. He brought me an ice soy chai. And I was like, yes. And he did those things intrinsically that I had wanted or hoped that a partner would do for me over the years. And so I was kind of like, OK. The picture, not perfect. But who am I to say that this is not the person for me? Because we dug deep. We shared the good, the bad, the ugly. I mean, six kids and two ex-wives. There's a longer story there. You know, and, and 31 and not dating for a while and unmarried. There's a story there. And I thought, you know what? I love this man. And my mom loves him. My brother loves him. My family loves him. My friends love him. Like, this is perfect. What, why am I fighting this? And so the spring of the following year, we got engaged. And we had already planned on going to California to go see his oldest son graduate from high school. And it was a chance for me to meet five of the kiddos. And there was a set of twins in there. The kids were amazing. They were warm. And they have always been warm and kind and respectful. And I was like, OK, this is great. I met his ex-wife. She was a little prickly. It was prickly. My brother knew her, so I was like, hey, Ramadan says hello. And she was like, OK. But regardless, the kiddos were great, and it was a success. So we spent the rest of summer just hanging out, having a great time. And the fall semester, spring come, or fall semester comes around in 2010. I've got my dancers. He's looking for a new job. And he found a new job in San Antonio, Texas. So he left the January of that year, and then I headed out the following year to San Antonio to start planning our fall wedding. And in, that, in those six months, we got married. We honeymooned in Costa Rica. I got pregnant shortly after that. And then he got a job in Boise. I was not happy about moving <laughs> to Boise, Idaho. 
There are no black folks in Boise, Idaho. <laughs> but for rich or for poor, let's do it. Let's go. So we get to Boise. I now say Boise. We get this adorable rental in the North End because I, I actually Googled Boise, Idaho on a side note, and Wikipedia literally listed every neighborhood. The bench, the west bench. I was like, ooh, the north end, it looks really cute, I think. I was like, I want to go there. And he was just like, okay, we'll find a place. So um, by August 2012, our oldest Nina was born, and it, life was beautiful. I joined Stroller Strides. He was in a job that he loved. He was contributing. He worked for the Fed, helping, keeping, helping keep firefighters safe. Um, three years later, we got pregnant with our youngest, and she came in June of 2015. And my amazing husband moved us into our final house, a house that was perfect size for us to grow into, had room for my stepkiddos, and it had a pool in the neighborhood. And he moved us in that house in three days, the day before Ella came. And so I walked out like this, and I came back with Ella, and the house was ready to go. And that's, that's what he did for me, and I just I loved him for it. And over the next year or so, the cracks kind of started to show. Um, and he moved out of the master in fall of 2017, and he said, it's not that I don't love you, I'm just indifferent. And at the time, I didn't even know what that meant. So I said to him, the girls and I are going to go on a trip, and I would like you to decide if you want to stay, or you should probably move out while we're away. So we went on our love tour to fill my bucket. I didn't know I had a bucket that needed to be filled, but my bucket needed to be filled. So we went to Minneapolis to see my sister, Indianapolis to see my grandmother, Chicago, Omaha to see their sister, Sophia, and we landed in Salt Lake City to see my really dear friend I hadn't seen in a while. And two days before we were heading home, he told me he moved out. He didn't want me, he left. I was crushed. Um, but because my bucket was full, I was able to kind of manage that expectation and the hurt and the pain that came with it. So it was July 20th, 2018, and he liked to keep these memory boxes of events that we would go to, like our first dance performance or um, uh, a playbill from a show. And so he actually left the memory box when he moved. So I open the box and I see like the playbills from our shows and things from our wedding and on top I see these notes, it seems really strange. And I call a friend of mine's, a, friend, a family friend's ex-husband, I say, hey, I found these notes and it's really strange. Can you, do you know anything? And that's what he said to me. That his wife and my husband had been dating for two years. So I'm gonna set the picture for you. My daughter, I'll call her Stella, is six now. And when they started dating, she was six months old. And their first date was the day after I had my gallbladder removed. And I remember crying myself to sleep because I just needed a little help with the kids. So, my world crumbled. 
But then there was also relief. Because I knew something was wrong, but I couldn't put my finger on it because I would ask him time and time again, and he would always give me the same answer. And I once even woke him up from a dead sleep. Who can lie from a dead sleep? I can't. I woke him up, la 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 la, same answer. And I was like, okay, then I, I've done everything I can. So from the day he met me, he started doing something called love dumping. He said the perfect thing, he did the perfect things, he listened, but he did more than listen, he studied me to find out exactly what to say and what to do to get me to fall in love with him. And he did it. So much so that he would actually sit next to me when I slept at night and whisper in my ear. And I caught him one night, but he was just saying, I love you, Sophia. And then once he had me, he started kind of messing with my mental state by doing something called gaslighting, to where he started making me think incorrectly about myself and think that I said things that just weren't true. One of the most, one of the ones that kind of comes to mind immediately is when I would say, you know, how about tonight you put the kids to bed, I'll do the dishes and we can sit down and watch TV. But see now, Sophie, you're adding more to my plate. You wanted the kids. Or how about we go on a family walk? You want me to work all day and then go for a walk after I've worked all day? And I was like, well, yeah, it's a family walk. No. And so he just would do things that would just make me think that I was losing my mind. And then one day in 2016, he said, let's go on a family walk. I was so happy, a family walk, let's go. I'm so excited, like, got my babies in the stroller, we're rolling out, and I got my hunky husband, and we run into this family. And I see the wife, and I was like, she's got a big ass. But she's white, she's not a threat. Because right, he only dates white girls, or black girls, right? And so, and they're a really cute couple. Her husband's a little, I mean, he, he's, he's not what I would have pictured her with. And that was her. So we started inviting them to our events, our family dinners, and Chris is traveling. Oh my gosh, she's traveling all the time. Um, and he's mentoring, and they're working on a business in the office. And he actually encourages me to befriend her husband because he's the more of the stay-at-home parent. And I was like, okay, that's kind of weird, but that's fine. And all my friends were really worried about what was going on, but I did everything I knew to do to kind of see if he was telling the truth. Um, I lost my place. But the reason why I missed the signals is because I was doing my best to be a good mom, be a good wife, and I was actually suffering from postpartum anxiety. 
So I was literally just bouncing off the walls trying to do everything right, which I found out later. So in the end, he left. He left me. He discarded me. He used me for my body, my mind, my finances. And then in the end, he groomed another woman to take my place, and he left. And he left everything, a house, his father's ashes. Originally, when I would share this story, I shared it because I didn't want to be alone in the trauma of what it has done to me. And then I shared the story because I was embarrassed, but I wanted him to be embarrassed, which he wasn't and still isn't. And now I shall my story because the cycle of abuse has to end. And so in those moments when I hear the echo of his voice, I can silence it more and more. And in those glorious moments when I sink into self-assurance and happiness, it feels so picking good. And finally this, I found love, my children. The love of a child is so pure. And for me, that's a perfect place to begin again. Thank you. Please welcome Spencer Harbor. Thank you. A checklist of things I needed to perform to become a love-worthy gentleman. Riding horses, pushing cows, vaccinating, haying, roping, rodeo, changing pipe, welding, backhoe work, hunting and fishing. I did all those things, but I certainly didn't love them. What I loved to do was making other people laugh, reciting movie lines, and performing. But I grew up in Salmon, Idaho. <laughs> Population 3,000. My old man was a water well driller, and my mom worked for the fish and game. But my mom also was involved with community theater. She was an actress and a singer, and later she was a director, and she helped guide me into a life on stage. I first started when I was six years old, and then being on stage and performing is where I felt like my true purpose. Well, in the big city of Boise, I was right there, living my purpose, performing as a car salesman. Oh, I was still acting. Oh, yes, sir, of course, we will cut the price of this car down and make it fit in your budget. <laughs> I also played the part as of, a, of a successful provider. I mean, I had an iron shirt, iron pants, nice shoes, baller watch, coiffed hair, looking sharp. I also had two cars, a nice house. I had beautiful twin girls. I had the perfect companion. Check, check, check. Well, over time, my relationship with the companion, it became toxic. She had been a heavy drinker and just becoming more and more vehement, more deceitful and violent. 
and I had to make the break. And when I broke the news to her, I went to work, and she had taken the kids and barricaded herself inside of our house and called the cops and claimed she was being abused. So when I went back to the house, I realized that I was told that I could not enter the premises or I could not, and I could not see my kids. On pure conjecture, I lost sole custody of the kids. I couldn't see them, even though I was, at the time, a stable breadwinner. So I was at the mercy of a volatile ex with wildly swinging emotions. So this made pickups and drop-offs with the kids a near impossibility because a lot of times the authorities were involved and everything was messy. And everything, all the circumstances surrounding me at that time made me sour. And being a sour car salesman, (laughs) never a good thing. So I started calling in sick which technically wasn't really a lie because I was sick of harassing people, trying to come up with witty comebacks to, I'm just looking. So I just stopped ignoring, I started ignoring my sales manager's phone calls telling me to come into work. I just stopped going. I ignored his voicemails. I just didn't care anymore. I didn't care about a lot of things. I didn't care about haircuts or regular showers. I definitely didn't care about paying any bills or answering my mail. My car got repoed. I let that happen. My car, my house was foreclosed. I was like, take it. I moved five times in as many months, sold off everything that I owned and scraped up just enough money to to afford rent, a 450-foot shack on Hayes Street behind a house there in the North End. I lived completely broke. I was stressed to the gills. I was still gaining weight like crazy. And I think that's because Papa Murphy's accepts food stamps. So I was just at the edge for just long enough. I made friends with the bottom. I mean, it was just right there. My kids were gone, and I had no identity. Some friends of mine had become DJs, and they introduced me to the electronic music scene in Boise. And it was there that I sought refuge. And the music just made me feel at peace. And I could just avoid guilt and shame and pain just long enough to flow into a better feeling. And I felt super comfortable at these parties, walking amongst all these lonely, broken souls in the dark, all hoping to cash in on some form of ecstasy. And massage was a universally accepted Uh, uh, currency at the time, and I got real good at it. I loved giving massages. I would massage the shoulders and feet of previous partners in my life, and I found that it always relieved a lot of my stress. So when someone would ask me for a massage at these parties, I set my hands at 10 and 2, and I taxied these people to places far, far away. And the fare that I received for having given said ride was the praise that I longed for. And then one night, after giving a massage to a good friend, she told me, you should do this for a living. So, what has two thumbs and still has a bunch of student debt from Apollo College? (laughs) This guy. I studied massage therapy, I studied A&P, I got to wear scrubs, I smoked weed with my classmates on breaks, and then we would uh, 
get together at, at labs and all massage each other for experience. It was fantastic. <laughs> at massage school, I made a friend. He had a rock collection he liked talking about, and I loved saying movie lines to him. And it was kind of a good relationship, but mostly we would swap stories about psychedelic experiences and how they shaped our reality. <laughs> and we became real close. One day he told me that a friend of his, an uber loyal and dedicated deadhead that had claimed to have been to over a thousand concerts, had gifted him several reams of this orange sunshine blotter acid. He kept it sealed in a metal barrel in the middle of a cow pasture where he dug and buried it and kept it buried in this pasture since the 60s, man. I was intrigued. Who wouldn't be? So, days later, my friend gave me two little bits of piece of paper, and he said to use that at my discretion. So, there was a big music festival coming up near Riggins, Idaho, and I decided to save this for the trip. A friend of mine drove me up there that evening. I made camp, and I told myself, look, I'm just going to take one of these things. And, uh... I mean, if the story were correct, we're talking about a 40-year-old little itty-bitty piece of paper a quarter the size of my pinky nail. How strong could it be? <laughs> Jimi Hendrix? Whatever. 20 minutes later, Excuse me while I kiss the sky! <laughs> I became hyper-aware of everything. The ground, the sky, the trees, the stars, the music. It just warm thumps of electro just wrapped my heart in soul-submissive hugs, and the lights were vibrant and, and glowing with a million different intricate textures. It was beautiful, and I danced. I danced my ass off. I, steam was just flowing off me, and sweat was just coming down in buckets, and my legs cramped up, and someone had to like come and massage my legs. I didn't care. I was still going. I was flowing. I danced to let go. I danced to heal. And the entire time, I was feeling the most intense love that I ever felt in my entire life. And that was all for me. Finally, at sunrise, standing on the banks of the Salmon River, taking in the sounds of the water, pulling itself across the rocks, each ripple grounding me deeper into a peaceful morning. I sat in the sand and I meditated. And with sparkling diamonds rolling down my cheeks, I decided then and there that it was time to get back to my purpose. I deserved that. So, back at the shack on Purple Haze Street, reinvigorated and starving. I hadn't eaten all weekend. And my brain was zapped of glucose and the precious neurotransmitter serotonin, which is the feel-good chemical. Sugar sounded amazing. So I gathered up what remaining change I had, and I walked up to DK Donuts on State Street <laughs> while still in an altered state. I ordered two of my favorites, a buttermilk bar and a maple bar, and I sat down to eat. 
And over, I saw a woman, an elderly woman, sitting at a table, and she was asking patrons for change. She seemed in need, and I felt compelled to give something. So I walked up to her, and I offered her my buttermilk bar. And with a toothless grin and gnarled fingers, she took the bar from me, and she placed its stickiness on top of a Boise Weekly she'd been using for a plate. And a Boise Weekly just popped out at me. Those are free! I need to get one of those. So with a half-eaten maple bar and a Boise Weekly in the other hand, I hobbled home <laughs> to look for the signs that I was looking for. And I got to my place, and I started reading. And these words started popping out as significant, not in any particular order, but it was like 3D. So I grabbed a Larry Miller Honda pin I had, and then I started circling words. Pur purpose, meaning, love. Yeah, yeah, that's good. I like that. Passion, togetherness, respect, oh yeah, flipping the back page, performs, tryouts, tryouts, and I circled this. It was an ad for a tryout at a play. I had to do it. It was a sign. It was right there. So when the time came, I went to the performance, the audition, I performed, and I got the part. It was working. It was all working. I was following my passion, and the doors were opening for me. And on the first day of practice, the director says, all right, we're all going to warm up. Everybody stand up, turn to your right, and massage the shoulders of the person in front of you. <laughs> so I set my hands at 10 and 2, and I placed my hands on the woman standing in front of me. And her shoulders are wound as tight as piano wires. <laughs> but my warm grip melted her into a deep guttural moan. Uh. Oh, yeah. Still got it. After practice, the woman saw that I rode a bike. And she asked, do you want to ride? So in my head, I'm going, of course Tubby wants a ride. <laughs> so I loaded my bike in the back of her Pontiac Vibe, said hello to her son who was reading Harry Potter in the back, and we drove home. And on the way, she was just chatting. We were sharing stories, and she was talking about her time teaching in Los Angeles and Hawaii. I don't quite remember much of the conversation because I was too busy looking at her body language. She had one hand on the wheel. She had her right hand behind playing with her hair. And then she had her left leg propped up on the dashboard. <laughs> just chatting and driving. Now... I'm no body language expert, but seemed like she was open to my company. So she drops me off and she says, do you want to ride tomorrow? And knowing the ride up Vista is uphill, I'm a large gentleman, I'm, yeah, I would love a ride. So the next day she shows up with her son to give me a ride. She flips me the keys and goes, I can't stand driving. Could you drive? <laughs> of course. And I felt so warm that this woman trusted me to drive her and her child. And that was our arrangement through the entire play. 
and it's still our arrangement today. <laughs> and that's our arrangement. For a lifetime supply of massages and chauffeuring, I won the hand of my true love, my best friend, and my teacher. She helped me get sober. I lost 60 pounds finding yoga. I got my master's degree. She helped me find the barber. <laughs> and most importantly, she helped me find my self-respect. And we successfully combined our families. Her two boys and my two girls became our children. And we traveled the world together, living and loving in Tokyo. We lived in Munich, a bit in time in India, La Grande. <laughs> and here, back to Boise, 13 years after that audition. <clears throat> well, it took a lot of trust from both of us to go to that audition and go through with it. And a bunch of weird stuff had to happen to help guide us here to you all here tonight to present this tale of faded attraction. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to see the storytellers, in addition to hearing them, this entire show is available on the Story Story Night YouTube channel. Support this podcast by texting STORYPOD to 44321. Story Story Night receives support from the Boise Arts and History Department and is funded in part by the Idaho Commission on the Arts and the National Endowment for the Arts. Thank you to our media sponsor, Radio Boise, and our season sponsor, The Boise Group. Podcast production is by Stephen Baldessari. Our theme song was composed by Dan Costello. You can rate and review this show on Apple Podcasts. Have a story? Call the storyline at 208-917-1970 and leave a message. Please subscribe to Story Story Night on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you download your podcasts. Find out how to participate in our live show at storystorynight.org or visit us on Facebook. I'm Jody Eichelberger. Thanks for being a part of our story.